Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I have never really been into politics, and judging by the write-in votes every election, I don't really think I'm alone in that. Uh, It seems that Mickey Mouse gets the most write-in votes in every election, Uh, but also Honey Boo Boo, A Bag of Rocks, and Your Mother have also made an appearance on the write-in ballot. And as ridiculous as those write-in votes are, we've actually had some unlikely candidates who have been voted into office, even though they looked like write-ins at the time. I was living in Minnesota in 1998 when a WWF professional wrestler with the nickname The Body threw his name into the ring for the gubernatorial race, and he won. Now, during his time as a wrestler and as a color commentator for the WWF, he was known for taking the side of the less popular opponent. In his last match as a commentator, he voiced his pleasure when both opponents broke the rules, at one point claiming, this is what I like, let the two goody two-shoes throw the rule book out. This followed him into his political career as he won the office of governor for the Reform Party based on his encouragement for voters to not vote for politics as usual. And he was certainly un- Usual, Jesse the Mind Ventura still wore his signature feather boa to his inauguration party. Interestingly enough, while working as an actor prior to his political career, Ventura met and became friends with another future state governor. In 2003, in the state of California, a former Mr. Universe with a resume that included a barbarian, a cyborg assassin, and an undercover kindergarten cop, but no political experience, announced his candidacy for governor on The Tonight Show. He ran on a ballot to recall the current governor in a field of 135 candidates, and he only agreed to appear in one debate, and he won the election. And then he said, I'll be back, and he won re-election. That was Arnold the Governor Schwarzenegger. Now, how did these unexpected candidates get elected? Can we all agree that we often don't get good options for political leadership? Every election, I am disappointed in the lack of perfect candidates and kind of tired of the good enough to bad leadership choices of our nation. And while I am grateful for the right to vote, I often stand in the polling booth and I shake my head and I throw up my hands. Isn't it terrible? This is the best we've got? these candidates, this system, sometimes okay is kind of our range. And every time a new election comes around or a new person pops up, we think we might get it closer to right this time. But it just keeps failing us. And so we keep waiting. And as we turn to the big God story today, we find dissatisfaction with leadership is not really a new problem. Now, throughout this series, we've been looking at the pursuit of God's shalom, his peace, and the four elements of that peace. And over the last few weeks, we've seen the pieces begin to fall into place, and the anticipation of God's people is building. 
Now you and I can look at the remaining pages of our Bibles and see there is much more to anticipate. But if you were an Israelite living at this time, you would think the stage is set. Pastor Corey talked about how God will make a way for his people. He led his people out of Egypt, rescuing his kids out of slavery to become a nation. Then Pastor Clayton taught on the law. The law says, here's your purpose, to be a society based about God and not about yourself. Following God's rules means you set aside your own interests in pursuit of a relationship with God. And it established God's presence among them through the tabernacle. The final element of God's shalom entered in last week, God's place as his people carrying the Ark of the Covenant led by God's presence entered into the promised land. It seems like a perfect setup, right? We are on our way back to Eden. The nation of Israel is coming of age, but shalom is still broken by sin. We just need the right leader to make God's shalom stick. The king would be the final piece of this puzzle, holding together shalom. See, what disrupted shalom was sin. And what was promised back in Genesis was a serpent crusher that would conquer sin. The Israelites have heard throughout history that this king is coming, that he'll solve all of their problems. But over the years, the root of the problem, which is sin and turning away from God, manifests in military oppression. And the Israelites focus on the presenting problem and how to be free from it without addressing that root of sin. So with their eyes averted from the root issue, they wait for the leader that will bring shalom. Have you ever heard the phrase, everything rises and falls on leadership? You know, we often use it for those times when leadership is both the problem and the solution. The nation of Israel shouldn't know that to be true. If their leader is God and they follow their leader, then things should be rising. But these are wandering people who, though they finally have a home, they are still prone to wander. This is kind of a coming-of-age story for the Israelites. But as we know from our own coming-of-age, we go through a few phases along the way. See, when they first enter the land, they are in terms of leadership in their toddler years. Have you ever observed a house with multiple toddlers? It is chaotic and fantastic. It looks like a party that happened when the parents weren't home. The toys come out, the snacks are abundant, there's sippy cups all over the floor, there is no one in charge. Maybe when the parents play man-on-man defense, but the book of Judges captures the mentality of most every two-year-old I know. The Bible says everyone did as they saw fit. Now, they were a tribal society, and God was the king. He was in charge. And when the people needed a leader to fight their battles and to unite them, God would raise up a military leader who was a judge to deliver his people. And just like a toddler who does something wrong and then needs to apologize, they go through cycles of obedience, rebellion, repentance, and restoration. And they do this over and over again. They just can't get it right. At the end of the book of Judges, the last verse sums it up. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. To say there was no king 
meant the people had turned away from God. And this is a big problem for a people who steward the retelling of the provision of God in a way as mighty and as incredible as the crossing of the Red Sea. Turning away means that they are a forgetful people. But in the view of the Israelites, the the problem was foreign oppression. They just needed a better army. What they didn't recognize was that the foreign oppression was actually disciplinary. The whole purpose was to bring them back into a right relationship with God. The answer wasn't a better military. The answer was obedience to the purpose that God had called them to. So as the nation of Israel continues to come of age, it eventually moves into kind of those preteen teenage years where the pressure to be like those around you takes over. And they declare they want a king like everyone else. They see what's working for everyone else. Kings are dominating on the battlefield. Seems to be solving everyone else's problems. Maybe it'll solve our problems. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. But here's the problem and how they ask for it. They want a king instead of God, which is what the other nations around them have, rather than a king under God. Now, a man named Saul proves to be the exact kind of king the people ask for. He is handsome, he's fitting of the military office of king, but ultimately he is not a king that is with and for the people. And he completely disobeys God, and though he continues to reign, he's actually kind of on the sidelines. We know that God's blessing will not come through him. In fact, it actually says that God's love was taken away from him. He was disobedient to the covenant and eventually he dies. But while he's still on the throne, God anoints an adolescent named David for leadership as the king of Israel. And in the end, Saul was the king the people wanted. But David was the king the Lord anointed. David, the anointed king, chosen by God, he waited for years, he was chased by Saul until it was his turn to take the throne. He was originally anointed king likely as a teenager. Uh, Most of us know the story of David and Goliath and that probably happened in about his 20s and he finally becomes the king At age 30, he understands the waiting of the Israelites. We also know him as a man after God's own heart, which could sound like an online dating profile line, but truly it has a deeper meaning. It means that he he had submitted himself to God. He was in full submission of his king. God was his leader. He's good on the battlefield too. He drives back the Philistines, establishes the land boundaries promised to Abraham, makes Jerusalem the capital city, and brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. God's presence is with him, and he would seem to be the king that Israel's waiting for. And then the word of the Lord comes to him as he's settled in his palace. 
It says in 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 1, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now we're going to continue to read in 2 Samuel in a moment, but we do want to pause and thank God for his word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To be honest, while this is a covenant for God's people and it holds blessing and good news, it might have started out as a little bit of a blow to David. He has great intentions in his plan and excitement about building the temple, but God has other plans. Now, I remember the first time that I went on a mission trip. Here at Christ Community, we call those go teams. And my team's mission was to go to Honduras and build a school for the people in a village there. And I could imagine the kids in the rooms learning and receiving an education because I was going to do the hard work of building this school for them. Little did I know that I would meet those people and be changed by them. That they would educate me in things so much more important than pouring concrete floors. I thought I was going to save these kids from an uncertain future. And they showed me that uncertainty of everything around me at home and what was really important. This may have been King David's mentality. He's accomplished so much and now he's ready to finish it off. He's going to build a temple for God. He's the closest thing we've seen to a hero in Israel's history and this would make sense to establish it in a building and do something great for God. And God shuts him down. God says, you think you're coming to rescue me from homelessness, but I'm coming to rescue you. God isn't looking for you to do him a favor. He's looking to be your king. Now God goes on in his words for David and not only does he refuse the house, but he says, and I'm going to bless you. And not only you, but all the people through you. And so let's look at what God promises David in 2 Samuel 7, starting with verse 8. As we look at this passage, look for the word I And underline that each time you see it. It says this, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest 
over all your enemies. Now notice how many times God takes credit in this passage. I thought this story was all about David. Maybe when you were young, you learned that David was brave because he fought Goliath. And he was. But if you think back to that exercise that Clayton had us do last week about asking why, you can do the same thing with many of our friends from the Old Testament. God retells the story of David's life, recounting why all of these things have happened to David. Now, one of the things that we encourage people to do as they read scripture is to keep the lens, what does this passage teach me about God? And that's why we call it the big God story in Kids World, because it's one big story that's all about God. And sometimes we try to trick the kids in Kids World and we'll ask them, who is the story about today? And because your kids are really smart, they usually answer, God. Because when we establish our theology as people who are made in the image of God, we can establish our identity. And that identity will inform our beliefs. And those beliefs will guide our behavior. When we establish our theology, what we believe about God, it establishes our identity and our beliefs, which will guide our behavior. We often look for ourselves in the stories of the Bible and try to identify ourselves in someone like David. We may have some of the human feelings and some of the traits of David, but when we look for who God is in the Bible, we find God is the hero who informs us of who we are. So this is where God tells David, you are who you are because of who I am. And God uses a pattern of I did and I will. By naming what God has done for David, he's reminding David of who God is and what he can do. He reminds him that he took him from the flock and appointed him ruler over my people Israel. God gives a legacy. He reminds him that he's been with him and that he's been for him in battle. God gave him victory over enemies. And then God says, I will. I will make your name great. I will give you victory and rest from your enemies. So there is no doubt that this God of the past is the God of his future. God's promises continue in verse 12. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And here's the big reveal. God tells David, I will establish a house for you. Now throughout this passage, that word house is kind of a play on words. In the Hebrew, it can mean a structure where a person lives or a structure where a God lives, such as a temple. 
Uh, And when it's a king, it actually means a dynasty. God says, I will raise up your kids to succeed you in your rest. Now, this wouldn't have seemed so strange. Generally, the successor of a king was his child. But remember that David ruled under God. He was like middle management. So the cultural belief would say, my son would succeed me. But if God was king, then God's son would be king. If God is promising a dynasty forever, this goes far beyond the next generation. And now we have the benefit of looking back on this promise. We can see it through the lens of people who know the end of the story. This promise is partially fulfilled through David's son Solomon, who in fact does build the temple. He does build a house for God. But ultimately, this promise establishes the coming Messiah and with it, more waiting for the ultimate king who will bring true shalom to his people. And with that promise of a dynasty, we begin our waiting and our trusting. Because though the scenes of future messages this summer will flash forward to the promise of Jesus, we still long for Eden. We want that perfect leader who can rescue us and fulfill the belief we have of what the world should be. But we have an opportunity to pursue shalom right where we sit. We don't have to sit in waiting for the perfect earthly leader, but we do need to sit in trust under the perfect king. So what is it that you're waiting for? What are you waiting for? Maybe you've tried being the hero and doing things for God. And he just wants you to surrender and rest. Maybe you need to study more of who God is so that you have a better idea of the way that you bear his image in the world. Or maybe you have never surrendered to Jesus as your king. And today you want to do that. You want to allow him to lead your life. See, we each have a little turf we lead. We each have a little garden that we influence. I was once in a restaurant and I overheard a conversation between a mom and her young child. She had told the little girl to sit down in her seat, please. And the little girl replied, well, you're not the boss of me. God is the boss and then daddy and then you. To which the mom sweetly replied, Well, if God is the boss, that makes me middle management, and I would suggest that you sit down. So whether it's your family, a corporation, a community group, a soccer team, we each have a place where we lead. Our place of middle management under God's rule. Leadership expert John Maxwell says it this way, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. So to find your place of influence, your little garden, we should consider these four aspects of shalom that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Now the first aspect that we've talked about is people. It's people. Who are the people that God has entrusted to you? And to find those people, look around at who you spend your days with. Chances are that's where you have some influence. Who we are with and who we lead 
matters. God has entrusted you with certain people for a certain season to have influence in their lives. So how are you going to foster community with these people? It might be your neighbors, your coworkers, your family. But what if it's also the vendors you use in your business? Maybe it's people who serve you by keeping your school classrooms clean and simply seeing them as part of your corner of the world means that you think of ways that you could shepherd them and serve them and influence them. How will you make peace, not just keep peace, but make peace for those that you lead? What are you doing to work towards shalom with the greater community, with the people you have direct influence over? Who do you know who feels lonely or isolated right now? And bringing shalom to them might be a simple phone call or card. While you may not be running for public office, where would you get the write-in vote? Who are the people that you have influence over? Now, the second question that we have and the second aspect of shalom is the place. Are you being faithful to the place where God has you for this time? Or are you looking for the next place without a release? Now, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, as you may know him, was a man of incredible influence. But think about where God had placed him. On a public television show, in front of preschoolers, with puppets. As a licensed pastor, he could have had ambitions that would have taken him far beyond his neighborhood and into some powerful pulpit. But he was faithful to that place. And because of his faithfulness to what God had called him to, his influence grew far beyond anything he could ask or imagine. So where has God placed you for this time? What field does he have you in? What has God gifted you with that you uniquely bring to this space for this time? I can imagine if you work in the medical field or maybe as a teacher or administrator in the schools, this might feel like the perfect time to consider a move to a new place. But even in your exhaustion, I would encourage you to cry out to God to take seriously that he has placed you somewhere to offer leadership and to steward this space under him. While it might be tempting to look back at other options, how can you bring peace? How can you bring shalom in the field where you lead? Maybe it's where you live. Maybe you feel like your house is too small or you should be living in another city. Maybe you're a recent college graduate, you're living back in your parents' home while friends are settling into jobs and apartments, but God has you in the place you're in to influence a parent or a sibling or maybe even people you might interview with. So instead of coveting what other people have, just like Clayton talked about last week, how can you practice generosity in the place where God has you? And then what's your purpose? Jesus prayed, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you've called me to do. Have you completed the work that God has given you to do? Nothing more and nothing less. David has his eyes on building a temple, a home for God. And whether that was said with a zeal for God and a desire that God would not be homeless, 
or out of kingly ambition. I'm not completely sure, but God made it clear it was not his work to do. Even though it was good work, it wasn't his work. God's purpose for David was to shepherd his people and to usher in the promise of a future forever king. So often I look at someone else's ministry or someone else's family or business and I feel like there is so much more that I could do, but God has not called me to it. God has called me to finish the work that he has set my hand to and to carry it to completion in this place for these people. Now, during the stay-at-home order, I admit I had a loss of purpose a little bit. So our family looked at the people who are around us and the place that God had us in our home, in our neighborhood, and considered what purpose God might have for us. And what I know is that God has, encouraged, has created me to encourage and equip people. And I can live out that purpose to encourage and equip people anywhere in my life, even when I need to stay six feet away from people. So we decided maybe our purpose was to start a bike and tractor parade in our neighborhood. Now, we thought this was one way we could encourage the people around us and to equip them to have something to look forward to every day and consider how they might also spread joy to our neighborhood. And each night at 6 p.m., the tractors and the bikes would start lining up at the end of our driveway and we wore crazy costumes and we led our neighbors down the street. And in doing that, we met them. We got to know them. And hopefully we gave them a little bit of hope along the way while fulfilling the purpose God had for us in that place with those people. Now I recognize a nightly tractor parade uh, may not be the way that God has given everyone to live out their unique purpose and to lead in the area that God has placed you. So I would ask this question to you. Who has God created you to be? Another question, what are the ways you uniquely reflect God in any aspect of your life? When you know your purpose, you can live it out in whatever place with whatever people God calls you to. You bring shalom, not by ambition for another person's purpose, but by living out your own. Finally, we come to God's presence. Where is God's presence in your life? When you picture your moments, where do you picture Jesus? Is he right next to you? Or is he distant? Often in our ambition for leadership, we can pine for years. And in the process, we wish away the moments. But God's presence is in the moments. Don't get so wrapped up in your doing and your wishing and your looking beyond that you miss being in God's presence. David demonstrates his desire for God's presence in his response to this humbling promise he receives for the Messiah to come from his family line, to be established forever. In 2 Samuel 7, 18, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he prayed. He recognizes that what he has been given has been given by God and he knows how to respond to that. He responds with humility. 
He starts with this truth about God. He says, sovereign Lord, who am I that you've brought me this far? He responds with praise. He says, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. And he responds with dependence, asking God to keep his promises. His prayer is not just for himself, but for future generations. He says, you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Our true shalom will not come until Jesus returns. There will still be unrest in the world. We will long for Eden until the day it comes. Today, we have an opportunity to take communion, to remember the perfect king, the king who came and lived with us and then died for us and who will return and reign. We have the king who will lead us, who goes out before us and who fights our battles through his broken body and his spilt blood. And in this act of communion with God, we both celebrate and we surrender. We celebrate the king who came to be near us, to be with us in body, And we surrender our sins, the battles in our lives, to the king who died for us. Let's pray. God, we praise you, O sovereign Lord, the one who fights our battles for us, and the God who came to be near to us. God, you are near to us right now. And as we turn to you, as we celebrate communion together today, God, we are thankful We don't want to be wandering people. We want to be people with our eyes on you, people pursuing your shalom. God, show us our place. Show us our people. Show us our purpose. Give us your presence. Let us sit in that and rest in that today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.